Shalom. I'm Mary Mansman of JewishBoston.com, and I'm here with Dan Seligson of Israel 360. Thanks for joining us for the Jewish Boston Israel 360 podcast. This month, we're focusing on Israel's 70th anniversary, celebrated officially on April 19th on Yom Ha'atzma'ut. Don't miss any of our episodes. Subscribe to Israel 360 and Jewish Boston on SoundCloud and iTunes, and remember to follow us on social media. This year, Israel, a country with nine ski lifts, three skating rinks, and winter temperatures hovering around 60 degrees, sent a record 10 athletes to the Winter Olympics in South Korea. Among them was the first to take the plunge, quite literally, in the men's skeleton. A.J. Edelman, a 26-year-old Orthodox Jew who attended Maimonides in MIT, has likened his sport to taking a lunch tray, diving headfirst onto it, and going 90 miles an hour down an icy chute. This past February, he competed with the best in the world wearing the blue and white of Team Israel. Israel 360 and Jewish Boston caught up with AJ a few months after the closing ceremonies right here in Boston. AJ brought his sled, or lunch tray, his body-fitting uniform, which I tried to try on, but he said I would break every seam it had, Olympic pins, and a controversial helmet as well as stories about being the first in his country to compete in a sport so far into Israel that he practiced 8,000 miles away. You can visit us on jewishboston.com and israel360.org to see the photos from our morning with AJ. Welcome, AJ. First, let's talk a little bit about what you do, which is you put on a helmet and some tight-fitting clothes, and you go headfirst down a track at around 80 miles an hour. Is that accurate? About that, yeah. More, uh, closer to 90 most of the time. All right, so that's Don't how you get short, into the Olympics. Yeah. I was only going 80, <laughs> so I didn't I didn't make the Olympic team, but 90, you say. Yeah, a difference of a couple of miles an hour could mean tenths of a second. That's huge. So how does somebody get started in a sport that sounds completely insane, frankly? I think everybody has a different story of how they came to the sport. Uh, usually we have some kind of catalyst in our life where we want to change a direction or we want to accomplish something. I think that's what I've gathered from most skeleton athletes. A lot of them are what's called talent transfer athletes, where they have been in one sport, are very proficient at one sport, or multiple sports, but want to transfer their talents over. So a lot of skeleton athletes come from speed sports, uh, uh, athletics, sprinting, rugby, which involves sprinting, uh, soccer, which involves sprinting. A lot of them come from running-related sports, but also some come from aerial jumping and other Olympic sports. And they see skeleton, and they decide that it might be just what they want to try, and they're adrenaline junkies, and they fall in love with it. So, you know, I've always wondered about the first time someone goes off a ski jump, because that looks to be even more insane to me, possibly. But you don't start by jumping, you know, the 30-meter jump or whatever it is, however high it is at first. How do you... uh, how do you start going down skeleton runs to get to work your way to 90 miles an hour? <laughs> right, it's a terrific question. The The learning curve in skeleton can be, or I'd say the, the time from when you start until the time that you go to 100%, you know, from the top of the track at full speed, that, that time is very short. You go from the middle of the track when you start off and you're padded up like the Michelin man, you look like almost a linebacker on the side because they don't want you to feel the pain of the sport and then decide that you want to quit it before you learn what it's about. So I went from the middle of the track, padded up for about three days or four days at the beginning, and then went to the top. And that was my trial by fire. So a week, pretty much within a week, you're 
within a week, you do it five or six times. I'd say that a lot of people wonder, I mean, what, what is that process, right? So a lot of people say, you know, how do you break into this sport? Like how to, you know, you decide you want to do skeleton or you see you want to do skeleton. How do you, how do you climb that ladder? And typically what it involves is reaching out to a national federation as I did for Israel and attending what we call a driver's school. That's a bit of a, a bit of a misnomer, a driver's school, because it would imply that you knew how to drive the sled. So the sled, what we, when we're on the sled, we are driving the sled, we're steering it, but for the first 150 times that you go on the sled, you don't know whether you're going up or down the corners. The G-forces are so extreme that your body doesn't know what's going on. So for the first five or six of those 150, you're completely blind, your head's lying on the ground all the way down the track, you're getting beaten up and hitting walls, but then eventually they throw you to the top. They're like, you know, you've gotten as much as you can going down from the middle, time to prove that you're a man or a woman, you know, and uh, and get down there. So they remove the padding from you and uh, send you to the top of the track, and then you start, you know, experiencing uh, another level of pain. <laughs> That's wild. So yeah, let's talk about how did you get to the Olympics? I mean, what what went? What's the journey from point uh, I, so I, from point of view? There's so much. Uh, I'd say the, the very starting point was in October of 2013. October 2013, I was sitting um, in a dorm lounge. It was just basically the floor lounge at my dorm at school, and I was wondering what I was going to do. I was set to graduate that year uh, in you know come June of 2014. So. I was a senior and I was wondering what, what exactly was, was I going to do with my life? And I knew that I was an athlete. I knew that Hashem had given me like, you know, God gave me a couple of talents and one of them, the primary one in my life at that point that I thought of was sports. And I said, well, if I stop playing sports now at a competitive level, then in a few years that, that gift is just going to be gone. You know, like if you don't use it, you lose it. And I want to do something with it. But if I'm going to dedicate an extended period of life, extended period of my life towards it, I want it to be something huge. Like it, it can't be, it can't be playing hockey on the weekends. You know, as great as playing hockey on the weekends is, you know, if I want to further that skill, I really want it to be a full-time endeavor. It's got to accomplish something. So I thought the best way to do that was to make, you know, in, in sports, if you're not in one of the major sports leagues, you're not winning a World Series or a Stanley Cup, you know, what is the biggest thing that you can do is go to the Olympic Games. So I thought, you know, the biggest thing that I can do for myself is is go to the Olympic Games, and it can't be this really selfish uh, kind of goal. It has to have some other other theme. You know, it's really kind of empty if you just say, well, I want to go to the Olympic Games. It, then it becomes all about this really singular, tunnel-focused endeavor, and it's really kind of lonely. So I thought, you know, what what would what would take it to another level? And so I thought, you know, the way to take it to another level is trying to accomplish something for the broader community. And uh, when I was at school, Mike Rosenberg, who was at MIT, is the alumni director. So he was Mike Rosenberg, who was the alumni director of Maimonides School. He had mentioned something to me about not having many uh, alumni who had reached a high level of sport. And I, you know, it, it really struck me that that was it was a truth that was very uh, disturbing to me. You know, we have a lot of alumni, hundreds of alumni, thousands of alumni, and Statistically, we should have more athletes at a higher level, and I thought, well, why is that? It's, you know, it occurred to me that it's because Jewish people, uh, or you know, on, on the more religious end of the spectrum at least, had a perception that we don't do sports at a high level. And so I thought, well, maybe that could be my thing. 
you know, trying to bring more high-level, elite-level sports to young kids or to Jews and to show them that it can be done. And I'm, I'm not a superstar. I'm not an athletic superstar. I'm not, you know, playing in the NHL or the NBA or, uh, or anything like that. And just me. So, you know, if I can do it, maybe that can be an overall kind of story that people can connect with and kids can say, well, I would love to go to the games, you know, something like that. Oh. And so how were you able to then enter the Olympics for Team Israel? And what was the, what was so, the I mean, the process, as, as can be expected from a four-year uh, slog, uh, there were so many steps in between. But I guess um, in, in, the, in the shortest possible version of it, I'd gotten in touch with Israel's program. Israel had a bobsled program back in 2006 that disbanded uh, when there were hurdles, red tape hurdles, and trying to to qualify for the Torino Olympic Games. So I went online, I googled Israel Skeleton, Israel Bobsled. I messaged the president of the federation, I said, hey, I really want to do this. I was pretty fanatical at the time, so I'd send emails to everybody found on that whole website, and 90% of them had just bounced back, because the, the website was designed in the mid-2000s, you know, nothing was really going on. And he said, you know, go, go attend a driver's school and we'll see what happens. And I attended a driver's school in Lake Placid during the Sochi Olympic Games. It's where I got to try the sport and see what was involved in it. I found out later on that they, you know, the, the report on me was absolutely atrocious when I attended that driver's school. Everybody basically said that I had no hope in that sport. And, um, you know, that's basically how I got hooked up with Israel. The, the next four years was a tireless, nonstop effort in trying to make sure that we got Israel to those Olympic Games. And it's really what it was about whenever I referred to the accomplishment or the accomplishment or what had happened I'll always say you know we you know it's really important that people would understand that there's an entire effort in the background going on for my federation president who's basically a one-man army and then there's a couple other Israeli skeleton athletes who joined during my time as well who tried to get us to uh, to the Olympics and we as a collect as a collective we Israel made it so I'm really proud that I was the face or the representative of Israel. As, as it turns out, I'm not really the face on the helmet of, you know, <laughs> what people see. But, you know, we, we did it. We, we accomplished something pretty, pretty cool. Amazing. So we're going we're gonna to talk about that helmet in a couple minutes. And probably I'm going to put it on when I ask the question just to see what it sounds like. <laughs> uh, but I want to hear a little bit about the Olympics themselves. Um, we always hear stories about what happens in the village. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and maybe the stories have changed over the years, but uh, they were pretty wild. What What's it like uh, after the opening ceremonies during that next week or two weeks that you're actually in the village and doing your thing? Yeah, there was definitely a, a distinction between pre-opening ceremonies and post-opening ceremonies. You get to the Olympics opened on February 9th, which was a Friday. Yeah. We get there on February 6th because before the Olympic Games officially opens, there's a whole lot of stuff going on. There is actually qualifying races that go on for luge. There are so many people invited in luge that they have to call the field before the actual Olympic Games through qualifying runs. And so you can have somebody who qualified for the Olympic Games, shows up at the Olympics in luge, and they walk into opening ceremonies knowing that they're not going to race at the Olympics. It's very interesting. Yeah. So there's a lot of things going on during the Olympics prior to the opening ceremonies. I got to attend one of the um, uh, the team qualifying event that Israel was taking part in for figure skating. That was very fun. I think there's a lot of fun that goes on prior to opening ceremonies. But once opening ceremonies happens, it's very much the culmination of everything that we've worked for for four, eight, 12 years for some athletes. 
you walk into opening ceremonies and everything changes. You know, it, you're, you're there representing purely your country and then it's time to focus exclusively on your event. So I would describe it very much like summer camp. You're there, you're eating with the athletes. I wouldn't say you're sleeping with the athletes. You're sleeping in the same location as the athletes. <laughs> well, speak for yourself. Yeah, 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 I guess so. I'm sure that was happening um, <laughs> You're sleeping in the same locations as the other athletes. Uh, you're training with the other athletes, and then you it's you repeat, right? There's, there, you're not going out and really partying until your event's over. But for Israel, we're sent home after our event's over because for security reasons. So mm. I would describe it most as being in a summer camp, a big summer camp where the elite athletes gather and that's that was my takeaway from it. And so, what was it like? Do you think for you as an Israeli there, that was very different probably than for maybe other athletes? The experience of being an Israeli athlete in sport or an elite level sport, I think, is far different from what I've gathered than some other athletes in their own sport. <laughs> so there's a there's a level of pride I think in representing Israel that just doesn't exist for many other athletes in other sports and I'm not I don't mean to condescend I don't mean to patronize in any way it's just that as a Jewish individual representing Israel means something that you know every time I put my sled in the spur in the groove at the start we have a 40 50 meter groove to make sure that when we run the sled doesn't go wild Um, you know I have I have a motto I say for myself for my people and for my country and so whereas a lot of athletes represent their country when they're at the Olympic Games, as, as, as a Jewish individual, or, and as an Israeli, you're, rep- you're representing the broader Jewish community, and you're representing the Israeli Jewish community. And so there's, there's just a level of pride, I think, that just far exceeds most other athletes in most sports. And you feel that. You really feel that. You walk into the stadium and you really feel, wow, I'm here for Israel. Like, it, it means so much to represent Israel itself. Wow. And did you feel in the village that you were a part of the village? Did you feel somehow that, that you were sort of... When it comes to, um, to, to blending in with the village itself, right. everybody has their own uniform that they're wearing in the village. But with the exception of only a couple of sports, nobody has a name tag. It's actually illegal according to the IOC rules. It's a rule called Rule 50 to have, um, to have name tags or anything which specifies your own name. And so it was striking to me that everybody is denoted by a flag. Everybody mm-hmm. is denoted by their country. And so as an Israeli, as being one of the only two Israeli athletes at that particular village, there were two villages, only two were at our village who were Israelis, we had an important role to play to proudly represent Israel. A lot of people came up to us and said, you know, what sport do you compete in? We didn't know Israel was here. Mm-hmm. You know, they know that Israel has maybe a couple figure skaters, and that was pretty much it. But they, they wonder, you know, who are you? You know, where right. do you come from? And it was, it's part of our responsibility to be the ambassadors of Israel in those moments because they will take those experiences back and they will talk to other people and say, you know, I met an Israeli. I traded pins with him. You know, we, we trade pins. All of us get pins from our country. And it's kind of like the currency of the village. So as an Israeli, uh, I get 10, 15 pins and I'm trading them with other people. And Israel's pin is quite rare. And it, once, it, once the word makes it around the village that there's an Israeli there, they all want to come over and get your pin. So especially the, the people who have loads of pins, like people from Great Britain, right. you know, they have, there's loads of Great British pins, you know, going around because there's tons of Great British athletes. They all want to come over and be the one who scored the Israeli pin. So, you know, it's in, in that way, it's quite cool. You're just sitting down to eat. You feel a tap on your shoulder and some someone on a weird accent, either it's a Russian accent or Asian accent, they're like, you know, can we trade a pin? Can we trade a pin? And, you know, you have to be pretty cautious about how many pins you give out because... Sooner or later, you might find yourself a zero when you really want a cool pin from, 
you know, from Turkey or something. Yeah. What's the coolest pin you got? Uh, Kazakhstan looked pretty good. Thailand was great. Thailand I saw had, Kazakhstan. That was actually a really good looking yeah, pin. Yeah, it was a good looking pin. Uh, is, America has so many different pins. They have a pin for each one of their sports, oh, actually. Yeah. So I didn't go after an American pin. I can get an American pin whenever I want. But, <laughs> you know, Turk, uh, Thailand was actually pretty cool. Did you actually single-handedly improve Kazakhstan-Israel relations with that pin exchange? I mean, <laughs> yeah. I didn't know that there was much going on between the two countries. No, I, it was it was a nice exchange. When when you're in the village, there's very little. There's there's no politics going on except you know we wanted to talk to some of the Iranians, and the Iranians can't be seen talking to Israelis, mm-hmm. so they'll politely tell you you know they'll just motion that you should go away. But for countries like Turkey or Kazakhstan, Malaysia, some of the other countries that might not have the warmest of uh, of relationships with Israel, you can p- make a positive difference on the people who are there so that they can go home and tell their families about it. And so Kazakhstan was actually pretty cool because we had a chat. And, you know, Iran I definitely couldn't talk to, but I had a chat with some North Koreans. It was pretty, it was pretty interesting to wow. talk to all the different people from different countries. Wow. So uh, let's talk about that helmet. And actually, I'm not going to put it on, but um, the helmet... <laughs> Uh, we saw in the photos in the Times of Israel had a very special design on it, and when you were in the Olympics, that design changed a bit. Can you talk about that? Yeah, so there is, again, in Rule 50, Rule 50 governs the articles of clothing that you can wear. The, the IOC is very rigid on what you can wear, what you can advertise, anything that goes on in the games governed by some rule. So Rule 50 prohibits displays of religious and political propaganda. Samson, who I've always had on my helmet, was deemed to be religious propaganda. It, it essentially started out as, as kind of a nice thing, in my opinion, where NBC picked up the story that, you know, this was what my helmet represented. And Samson is always supposed to have been representative of my journey. It's my journey based on the scouting report that I had received when I was in driver's school was basically that it would be an impossible dream. And on Samson, to me, it always come off as somebody who accomplished what seemed to be at that moment an impossible dream, an incredible show of strength. And Israel is very connected, I think, to the Samson story. Their backs might be against the wall, but they're always able to pull it off. And they're a strong nation, even though they're facing a horde of, of, of other individuals who might collectively be also very strong. So Samson, for me, was important. I've always had Samson on my helmet. When I got a special helmet designed for the Olympic Games, it was designed by Ron Slater, who does Tuka Rask's helmet oh. uh, for, the, for the Bruins. I took it to Ron, and I said, Ron, let's, let's do a version of Samson, which really, it really sticks out. So NBC picked it up. They said, well, he's got a helmet of Samson, and they asked me if it was approved. I had gotten it approved by IOC originally, and IOC was like, yeah, go ahead. It's totally fine. NBC wrote in its article like, "Well, we don't know how they we don't know how they uh, how they approved a religious themed helmet. We're following up with them, etc., cetera, etc." Cetera. So the IOC then had questions on its hands, you know. And uh, we had we had approved it a week and a half beforehand. I wouldn't have gone if if it hadn't been approved uh, with the helmet. But they ended up uh, forcing me to spray paint over uh, Samson, which became a bit of a story. And you know, to me, it's just one of the many things that occurred on the road to you know, that final run of, of the Olympic Games. There were so many things that happened in between, so many stories. I had Am Yisrael Chai written across my shoes, and that had to be spray-painted off. I had, you know, there's many little things along the way, which, you know, for me were were large events, but in the ecosystem of the whole thing, they, you know, they would barely register a blip. But, you know, for me, they were meaningful. Yeah. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about Israel's uh, Winter Olympic scene or 
winter sports scene too. Uh, you don't sound like you grew up in Israel. No, I grew up in in Brookline. All right, so I you went guys to have high a, school. There's a winter sports scene around here. <laughs> there is a winter sports scene around here. I'd say it's it's probably uh, it's only marginally more likely that you'd find skeleton in Boston than finding skeleton in Israel. Skeleton itself is a niche in it's a niche little sport. But you know, my whole goal was to get more individuals, more Israelis and more Jews involved in elite level sport. And skeleton, part of that calculus of choosing skeleton as opposed to one of the other sports I was considering, which was speed skating at the time in 2014, was that skeleton is eye-catching. Skeleton is really one of those things where people see it and they go, that's crazy. You know, that's, that's something that I would love to try. It sounds, it sounds terrific. So the goal being to get more Israelis involved in sports, I think there is a perception in Israel. One of the times I was training at Wingate Institute in Netanya uh, in the summer, just sprinting, I was taking a, a taxi back to the Wingate Institute from downtown Netanya, and the guy says, you know, what do you do? Um, obviously in Hebrew. And, and I answered him, you know, I'm a sportivo, me, I'm a national athlete. He's like, yeah, but what do you do? It's like, well, I'm, that's that's my job. It's what I do. And he's like, oh, it's a little bit down. It's not work, you know. It's, uh, <laughs> you get guesses from it, any income. I'm like, no, it's but it's what I do. It's it's what I do for the state. And you know, there is that perception in Israel that athletes are not. Um, it's not a job. Mm-hmm. And it, in many different countries that I've visited, those perceptions are different. In Germany, you're paid as you're a member of the police force of the army. You're actually, if you're in skeleton or bobsled. You're a member of the police force, and you're paid for six months as a policeman to go travel around representing Germany. And so it's it's different in Israel, and I'm you know I'm fighting to change that. When I leave the sport, I'm not done with Israeli sports. You know it, that that's been a very constant thing that I've been hammering on the Olympic Committee. I'm like, you guys can't send me away after I'm done. I'm sticking around because that's we have a job to do, and that job is really to get a higher recruitment of from the Israeli society in sports because that. You know, it has to change that people don't think that sports is a viable route for for their kids or for kids to think that, that sports is a viable route for them to take. So when, when the Olympics started, though, uh, I know American Jews in this country were paying really close attention to the opening ceremony and, like, filming their TVs when you guys were, were like, you know, doing the lap there. Um, people were paying close attention in Israel, correct? Um, people were paying close attention to Israel almost as, I think, a bit of a curiosity. So in Yidiot Acharnot, there was a six-page spread on skeleton. Right. And, it, you know, it was, it was quite flattering. But at, at the end of the day, it created a lot of what I cared most about is it created a lot of curiosity in the sport. People had never heard of it uh, up until the Olympics. What I was most known for in Israel is being called Hapatish Ivri. The, the, you know, they, they humored me and called me the Hebrew hammer. Uh, but in Yediot Achronot, it was a large spread called Iceman, you know, and it was it was quite cute. I really liked it, but it generated a lot of curiosity. We got a lot of interest after that from people messaging how they could get involved in the sport, and that's really, you know, that was that made me happier than almost anything else in the entire four years, you know, because that's that was my goal accomplished. the The goal was never just to make the games. The goal was to have something accomplished by competing in the games. And so when that spread came out, when we got those inquiries, when we got a lot of people asking, you know, how can we get involved and how did you even start this? Where can you train in Eretz Israel? Like that was, that was huge for us. So 
people were paying attention to opening ceremonies. People were paying attention to how we were doing. And I think there is a bit of a fixation in Israel as to whether you medal or not. It's huge in Israel to say how many medals we got. Or if if you compete in the games, they'll ask you, oh, yeah, mazi koi le medalia. You know, what, what is your... Um, what is your chances to go get a medal? Um, usually, flat out, I was, I was, I was able to answer them flat out. I was able to say nothing. Fs. You know, like uh, we had no coach. We're the only people who made it without a coach. We've done it in four years, so we had, uh, you know, probably the second least amount of experience there. You know, one one ahead from from Ghana, who got in just because he was uh, African. So, you know, it's the the chances for meddling, They, they want to hear about how you medal, but. At the end of the day, what I wanted to accomplish was a recruitment base. We had a lot of people reaching out who could be medalists in the future. And, you know, that to me was huge. So I would love to work to change that perception as well in Israel as to whether it's worth it for an athlete to go to the Olympic Games if they have no shot at medals. But, you know, Israel was excited to have 10. We had 10, which more than, I guess it doubled the previous high of winter Olympic athletes. And people it's, were it's the very, biggest team ever, right? Yeah, yeah. It, was really, it was really important for people to know that we had 10 athletes who had made Olympic caliber qualifications uh, in their sports. And that was, that was huge for us. That's amazing. It's amazing. So wh- what about in four years? What's going to happen? Uh, four years, it's hard to see myself continuing in skeleton. It's difficult primarily because of the financial costs. The financial costs are huge. It was about $40,000 a year. Wow. Um, Israel doesn't give any money towards that. The Actually, today, the Israeli Weightlifting Federation just closed its doors. Like, they just, they had they had an Olympian at Rio, and they just closed this morning, uh, citing that they couldn't, they, they didn't get 100,000 shekels, which Israel had promised them, and they're finished. You know, but we, as a federation, are chugging along. We're extremely dedicated, and so my, my goal is to make sure that for the next 8 to 12 years or longer that we have a flourishing base of athletes of talent that we can cultivate to get to the Olympic Games. And somebody, I mean, I've always known ever since ever since they said that I couldn't make the Games at all, that, you know, being a medalist in the sport was really, it was something which was not the immediate goal. But my goal going forward is to cultivate somebody who can challenge for medals, who can stand on a podium potentially one day. And that requires requires a talent pool to pull from and so that's my immediate goal going forward is to develop that farm system i have a lot of knowledge to grant uh to people that knowledge in the sport is the most precious thing it's the most expensive thing i spent a lot of time and energy and money in the last four years getting knowledge sometimes i would pay just to go to a competition i wasn't in like to a world to travel to a world cup purely to hang around the coaches who were there filming by the track and I wasn't even in those World Cups, but I would just go and learn by osmosis that knowledge. And it helped cultivate relationships, which I can use going forward for those next athletes. So no matter what happens in the next four years, if I make a comeback or if I don't come back, they will have the next talent base. They will not need to overcome that significant hurdle that you spend for the first two to three years of not knowing where anything is, not knowing where to purchase things, not knowing how to travel and to budget your time, not knowing who to go to for coaching. You know, that's that could give someone a real leg up. Well, you definitely have been a huge inspiration, I know, in the local community, even as much as on uh, when you were competing. The rabbi, I go to Young Israel and Sharon, not too far. Uh, but uh, the, the weekly Torah portion was mentioning about uh, priestly garments. And the example that was brought up was you. Uh, there was a insta- there's a, not Instagram, Facebook post. Famously, of you rapping to fill in, yeah, wearing exactly. your uh, wearing your uniform, and how how proud we were all were 
to see you wearing that and, 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 and all the aspects of both your, your Jewish identity and, and Israel. Um, and can you talk a little bit about what that felt like up there when you were doing that? Um, laying till and before competition was... Yeah. So, I mean, the story behind that picture, I believe it was in the 15-16 season or 14-15 season, Calgary became a base for me for which to train because I was, after, you know, we went to the driver's school and they said, you know, this guy, you know, he can't, can't do anything he's terrible at running and you know etc um i then became fanatical about improving what i could improve purely via repetition hard effort work and what i thought was brains and that was doing the sport longer harder and with more intensity than anybody else so i'd go to calgary and the reason i chose calgary as opposed to park city is because in park city i was lucky if i can get two runs a day the maximum recommended amount of runs per day is three for health reasons. When I went to Calgary, all the Canadians were capped at three because it was a Canadian track, but they let me slide eight to nine times a day if I just gave them a wow. credit card, essentially. And so Calgary was where I spent the bulk of my time because I got bulk runs in. For the first year, trying to get to that 150 run mark where I could feel if I was going up or down the corners where I wasn't blind going through corners and feeling extreme pain, getting to the 150 run mark was really important. And so I would travel from California where I had a job at the time on Thursday. It's like Thursday, Friday, Motze, Shabbos, Sunday, and then return to work on Monday morning. And in that time, I would take eight to nine runs a day, bash every wall in sight, but then go back the next week. One of the competitions ended up being in January of that year. And it was just a competition that I was, I, I could barely walk. And uh, I'd been hitting so many walls that I had hurt the nerves in my leg. I could barely walk. My hips were swollen. I couldn't fit inside the sled. The, sl the sled has a bit of what we call a, a saddle. And so that saddle is molded to how wide your hips are, just so that when you're going through the track, you don't jostle around too much. Every time you jostle, you can really affect the sled's performance and the sled's direction. And that could really end up concussing you, you know, potentially, the, the result of that. So... Um, just before that competition, I was really in some dire straits, and um, I'd forgotten to put on Tefillin that morning, and uh, I ran out to the car with all my stuff. I didn't want to be late to the race, and I had the Tefillin in my car. I was like, okay, it's time to put on Tefillin. So uh, I, I did lay Tefillin right before that competition. Then it became a real um, – after doing that, I felt a real connection to it. Uh, I put on Tefillin every day, but uh, most of the times I'd actually forget about it until later in the day, put it on just before sundown, like just at the end of the day, and – make sure I got it in but on race days specifically always it was part of the ritual before I went out to uh to the track that you had to get the tefillin on before the race and you know that was that's the story behind that picture that was the first time before a race that I had put on that tefillin wow. super inspirational well uh we have to wrap it up but I want to Thank you so much for being part of this. I don't know if we didn't tell you this necessarily, but you are part of a four-part series where we're celebrating Israel at 70, and I think sure. um, what we're looking at, well, we had Miri Eisen talking yeah. about kind of uh, Israel's place in the world at 70. We have you talking about Israel in sport. We have someone talking about Israel in fashion, and then we have someone else talking about Israeli innovation. And I think we're, you know, it's really inspirational to talk to you about what it means to you to to compete for Israel and to try to to build sport in Israel because you know it's like you said you're not just you're not just competing for yourself even though you're going down that track 90 miles an hour by yourself you've sure. got kind of a whole people behind you so 
Right. Amazing. And if if we could just before we wrap up, I want to explain that so that people out there understand, uh, like especially for the kids, yeah. the, the there's a story behind the the scouting report which we had gotten. Israel had gotten a scouting report um, at the driver's school. You know, they had sent me as as an Israeli to the American driver's school. So there was about a thousand people who applied to this driver's school in the Olympic year for the Americans. At the time that I was waiting for Israel to message me back. I'd also applied to this driver's school as an American because I had no idea if Israel would ever message me back at all. And so as uh, they take 10 out of 1,000 to the American driver's school, and so I was one of the 10 selected. And when they, when they accepted me to the driver's school, Israel had then messaged me back. And I said, you know, I'm invited to this driver's school. And they said, just go and tell them that you're an Israeli. You know, we have a tight uh, relationship with the American program. Our slider who had just retired at the time, Brad Jalipsky, is a great slider. I interviewed him. Right. So Brad's yeah. a great, great yeah. guy. And he tried to qualify for Sochi, and he was kind of hanging it up after Sochi at that time. And he said, uh, you know, just say you're an American. We have uh, we have coaches there who helped us out in the past. Say you're, uh, sorry, say you're an Israeli. We have coaches there who helped, helped us out in the past. And um, we'll see what they say at the end. And so from... March until basically March 14th was my birthday and it was the last day it was a Friday it was the last day of that driver's school and I sat down I wrote 2,884 which is the amount of days until Beijing 2022 in in a booklet that I just started to keep and I said you know I'm good for the next eight years for the next 2,884 days I will not stop until I get to this goal if I don't get to the goal after 2,884 days I can think about quitting um, Israel then, the Israeli Federation didn't contact me for six months. Unreturned emails, a whole lot of stuff. Um, you know, every few weeks I'd message them, like, where are you guys? What's going on? No response whatsoever. So in September of 2014, I'm lying on the hood of my car. So November of 2014, I'm lying on the hood of my car in California. I get a message from Brad. Brad's like, there's a driver's school next week. And I'm like, yeah, sweet. Where is it? He's like, Park City, Utah, get yourself down there. It's like, where have you been? You know, it turns out that they hadn't contacted me because the report, the scouting report from the U.S. coaches in Lake Placid was that I would be able to get down a track, but that was about it. That I can hit all the walls that I wanted on the way down, but I didn't know how to sprint. I came from a hockey background. I had no idea how to run properly. I couldn't sprint. And no matter how long it took, I would never make the Olympic Games. So... Like, when I say that's my Tom Brady story, that's my Tom Brady story because that was a scouting report. And when I'd heard that, it really, like, it really sunk in that it's something that, if it were accomplished, it would mean something to people who uh, would follow along on that journey. Now, in the middle of the first race, I finished 18 seconds off the first place guy. His name was John Farrow of Australia. He became a good friend thereafter. 18 seconds is two 100-meter Olympic races. So if Usain Bolt ran the 100-meter twice in a row... It would be as him running twice in a row, and I hadn't started my first race. That's how bad 18 seconds is, is really bad. So somebody at that race was trying to impress their friends. He was an athlete in the corner. He said, you know, most people quit within two years of the sport. It's too painful. They can't hack it. There's no Olympic chances. See that guy over there from Israel? He's going to be gone within two years. So I took out the page that said 2,884. It was inside my notebook. And I crossed out at 1,442. And that was... Trying, I mean, that cut the goal in half, where I said, not only can I not give up until 284, but I must make it in half the time. And so that 
you know, if, if, if there is any kids who are listening to this, or if there are any even adults who are listening to this and they think they have no shot at something, uh, you really should go for it. Like, really, really should go for it because the chances were nil. The chances were literally zero. And Israel didn't contact me for six months because of that. I think they were waiting to see if Brad would come back. Brad was going to come back. They were going to be like, no way should we talk to this guy. But Brad was, Brad was retiring at the time to keep the Federation current. They needed me to race in a race. So, I mean, going from, going from that non-existent chance to, to making it happen was, you know, it's, it's a huge part of the story. It's, for me, it's the defining, overarching, overarching theme of that story. Wow. Amazing. Thank you. That's really inspirational. Thank you very much. All right. Yeah, well, thank you so much for being on the Israel 360 Jewish Boston podcast. Um, we look forward to watching you in Beijing in 2022, potentially, or the five Padwans. That, was that what they call it in Star, Star Wars? The Padwans. Padwan. The five Padwans that you train <laughs> to, uh, to compete in the next one. So thank you so much. It's my pleasure. And for bringing all your stuff, we'll have photos. But uh, yeah, we'll post photos. We have some. We have a torch. Things. We have pins. We have uh, spandex. Suit, or we, shoes. Call the spandex. Suit. <laughs> suit. <laughs> the suit. We've got the suit. We've got the helmet. shoes are sharp, by the way. Shoes yeah. are very sharp. <laughs> Amazing. All right. Thank you so awesome. much. Thanks Thank so you much. Guys.